So I'm getting more bunions in that sense. The ones that I've seen post-op are usually the ones that have not succeeded in becoming pain-free. Mm. And so that's really tricky because then I need to explain to them about the surgery and the process and what's happened inside their joints and why they're still in pain and still address the footwear thing. But then that can sometimes almost be more confronting because they feel almost ripped off that no one sort of explained that to them before they went in for this major surgery. Welcome to the Restore to Explore podcast, hosted by your soulmates from the Foot Collective. I'm Jim, and here at TFC, we're on a mission to empower humans to restore their natural health and function from the ground up, so they can explore movement and life with freedom and confidence. So this week, I chat with Michelle Bergeron, who is a Melbourne-based physiotherapist with a special focus on foot and ankle rehabilitation. Throughout the episode, we explore Michelle's journey with physiotherapy, including her experience working with the Australian Ballet, in the AFL, and with Cirque du Soleil. We also discuss her overall approach to foot and ankle conditions, some common errors that she sees, and how she uses footwear as a tool throughout that process. And we also talk through some key tips for successfully navigating the rehab journey. I really enjoyed this chat with Michelle and I'm excited to learn more from her in the future through the Better Foot Project workshops that she's now running with Andy Bryant, which we actually discussed towards the end of the podcast. Their first workshop that we talk about was actually a few weeks ago now. However, I know that they are planning on holding more in the future. So if you're a professional in the space who's keen to learn more about how to assess and treat the foot and ankle complex, make sure you check out Michelle and Andy on Instagram and stay tuned for announcements there. Also, just a friendly reminder that you can now get paid to listen to our podcast using Fountain as your listening app. The Fountain app also allows you to support the podcast directly if you enjoy listening or you find these podcasts helpful. Before we jump into this week's episode, we wanted to let you know about our TFC Explorer membership designed to get humans out of pain and help them find foot freedom. We've been listening to the stories of thousands of humans around the world for years and working hard behind the scenes to bring everything we've learned from the experiences of the collective to create our ultimate online training program that's already changing lives. Whether you have a specific foot condition, issues up the chain at your ankles, knees or hips, or just want to improve your overall movement health, the TFC Explorer membership is for you. The membership gives you access to an exclusive online community of like-minded humans on the same journey and the support of our experienced TFC health professionals, including our other Restore to Explore hosts, Nick, Jim, and Tom. Together, you'll complete a six-week program with daily lessons, specific routines for your condition, and movement challenges that will upgrade your health from the ground up, help you build powerful, sustainable habits and lifelong mates from around the world. You'll also get to connect for live calls with our TFC pros and your fellow explorers to share your experiences and ask questions. If you join before July 2023, you'll get 50% off your membership. It's our way of saying thanks for helping pioneer this exciting new adventure. Head to thefootcollective.com forward slash explorer to learn more. The link is in the show notes. All right, Michelle, so great to have you on the podcast. Hi, thanks for having me. Pleasure. Yeah, so it's actually our first time connecting properly, which is kind of crazy because mm. um, I've been following your Instagram and loving what, all your posts and for quite a while, actually. And um, yeah, just really stoked that we can finally have a proper chat. And I'm very keen to dig into 
your story with physio and and with feet especially obviously you you have a big focus on feet um mm -hmm. and yeah just how you've ended up doing what you're doing now so yeah if we just start with that as long or short as you'd yeah. like to make it um <laughs> and we'll just go from there well first i'm also like excited about finally meeting you because i've also been following you online for a while now and interacting oh. so it's good to actually put a face to the name yeah um yeah all right so my story with physio well so i've been a physio for almost 17 years um i studied in canada after doing an exercise physiology degree essentially prior to that um, and then but my background in physio was performing arts. So I worked with lots of dancers and gymnasts. Um, I worked at Cirque du Soleil wow. and then I moved to Australia in 2016. Uh, and I started working at the Australian ballet in 2017. And that's sort of where <laughs> my professional career in the foot and ankle center started from because you know, I mean, we see so much foot and ankle stuff at the ballet. I don't work yeah. there anymore, but um, I was there for about two and a half years. And when I started doing that, I started enjoying working with the foot and ankle. I started found it quite interesting. And I got sent to help out the Melbourne Football Club at the request of the footy team to get a ballet physio to come in and give them some foot and ankle facilitation. Wow, interesting. Yeah, yeah. And I honestly, when I first went in, I thought I was going to be in over my depth because I was like, oh my God, this is a bit, you know, a bit much as a professional sports team and stuff. But actually, like they, they really didn't have the foot and ankle under control and I had a lot to mm. offer. Mm. Um, and then from, from there, it just escalated, essentially. Like I essentially just fell into the foot and ankle by accident after that because a few of the sports doctors that worked with that team heard that I worked in private practice and just started handballing every foot and ankle they saw my way. And, and so I just thought, look, I could use a niche. I've been a physio for a long time. I'm sort of getting a bit bored with the stuff I already know. And I, I went for it. So, so here yeah. I am five years later. <laughs> wow. Cool. How did the, um, how did the Melbourne, wait, was that AFL or NRL? Yeah. That AFL. AFL. Yeah. How did that come about? Did you know someone in the no, so my former, at the Australian Ballet, my former boss was working with uh, North Melbourne to help them with, they had one or two players that had some pretty big injuries, and so she had been working with them. Um, and so Melbourne was struggling with a couple of their players that they just couldn't get back on the field without their foot injuries kind of coming off again. Um, mm. And so they requested a ballet physio, and so my boss sent me because um, there was a conflict of interest for her, and she was like, Michelle, you could go do that. And I'm like, oh, Okay. <laughs> Wow, that's so cool. Yeah. And did you find like very, was it just very similar principles that you applied from your ballet, I guess, clients to? Yeah, yeah. To exactly the same principles. It's like a very different end stage, but the early rehab mm. and sort of the main principles of what they're doing was very similar. Yeah. Mm. Um, a lot more education for them though, because they, the footy players had a lot less understanding of their foot and ankle and how important it was. Whereas dancers are sort of, True. that's ingrained from such a young age. Um, yeah, they're constantly, yeah, yeah, they're constantly doing stuff with their feet and ankles. Yeah, I can imagine. Yeah, yeah. and I'm interested. Yeah, because obviously both of those disciplines or sports uh, include generally very tight, <laughs> narrow footwear. Yeah, how much do you think <laughs> that it contributes to, or like what what's been your the evolution of your understanding about footwear and how much it contributes to foot and ankle conditions or where it does where it doesn't yeah I mean that's definitely evolved quite a bit as well um the the, the it's, it's a challenging thing to work with any sport is that they have to just wear the shoe they have to wear yeah. 
Um, I had to negotiate with the footy players to go up a size in their shoe if they could, because they often wear them too small uh, because they like the snug fit. Um, I actually think that's partly because they don't have the strength in their foot to wear a shoe that's loose. Mm. And so they tie them exceptionally tight and they're really snug. Um, So, I mean, with most of them, I just encourage them outside of those to be in better footwear and like the wider toe box as best I can. It's a, it's a hard sell to get them into the full barefoot shoe. They're not quite, uh, a lot of them are sponsored as well, so they can't necessarily, but um, I've got some of them doing some, like some of their jogs and some of their conditioning and stuff in like a topo or an ultra, like a wider toe Mm. box that they're comfortable in. Mm -hmm. Um, And they do all their strength work with me. Once they've done it, I generally get them to do it all barefoot, which, which, you know, they've, I don't really do anything with Melbourne anymore, but they, they did appreciate the kind of the sensation of planting their feet and figuring that out. So, yeah. So, you know, the dancers as well with their point shoes, I mean, look, they, it's just, it's the nature of the beast as well. Yeah. Um, it's not an ideal situation, I guess is what it comes down to. And you, you yeah. aim that they spend the rest of the time doing all the right things, but yeah. Yeah. It's tough with professional athletes, especially because, yeah, like, well, like you said, one, there's the sponsorship concept and they kind of have to be seen wearing certain types of footwear. But even for their sport, like there is a, I guess, some level of performance uh, necessity or necessity to wear those shoes for performance of the sport. Yeah. Um, and especially for professionals, they train so much that they're in those shoes so much like versus your average person who just plays like a social um side or something like that they might train one night a week and they have games one day like one day on the weekend but a professional is pretty much in those shoes for hours and hours a day yep and i'm interested do you do you see a lot more i guess deformities of the feet uh i'm interested like you often see people on i guess dancers feet on instagram for instance (laughs) and you probably see the more extreme ones because they're the more eye eye catching but Um, what have you found in that sense? Maybe let's just go with ballet dancers. Do you, do you find that there is more deformations? Um, um, you know, it's interesting. Dancers? I would say at a professional level, in my experience, there's there's not as much as you think there would be. Yeah. Um, but bunions are probably the biggest one that they get. But most of them, I mean, the Australian Ballet was an exceptional place to work for that because they spend so much time on the strength work and really hammer that in. So mm. the dancers use their feet. They do a lot of their stuff, like all their strength work is barefoot, where they're working through the foot and that kind of stuff. Okay. They spend heaps of time doing intrinsic strength and all that. So, you know, they've got corns and calluses from their shoes. They've got bunions, but they they tend to actually have surprisingly strong kind of, like they don't look amazing, but they're kind of healthier looking feet. Yeah. The footy players had atrocious feet. Wow, <laughs> <laughs> oh, true. Yeah, because they just weren't weren't focusing on it at all. No, they didn't do any foot and ankle stuff really. But also, they're, like the cleats are really restrictive shoes. They're hard. They mm. had just as like the bunions are just as severe, if not worse, than in some of the uh, the dancers. I would say because mm. they have bigger feet as well, right? So true. You're sort of dealing with a size thing. Um, yeah, it, it's mostly kind of the four, the forefoot is where that you see the deformities. Like in the footy players, there are lots of clawed toes. There's lots of bunions and bunionettes. There's maybe less corns and stuff, um, whereas the dancers have the corns and calluses kind of side of it. So, mm. yeah. And it's interesting that because obviously those big football teams have physios and and high, very high quality physios, well educated, well you know high um, highly experienced physios. So it's interesting that 
they didn't really, they clearly didn't have the same level of understanding about fit and ankles as say you did as they're seeking an external person to come in, someone who works a lot with fit and ankles in the ballet. Mm -hmm. So what do you think, what do you think goes on there? Is it just a, a, a lack of training in the, in the physio, in the unis or just with physios in general? I think maybe when we went through, we were kind of taught the very basics about feet and then it was like anything more you just go to a podiatrist um <laughs> so do you think that's the issue or I mean what are they missing I think it's probably multifactorial um I think at uni we just don't really get it taught that well I know we didn't in Canada either like you know this foot was sort of like it's pretty complicated you know yeah you can figure it out later or whatever yeah um or wear some stiff shoes. I mean, at the time when I was in uni, it was all about like, you can't pronate, never pronate, pronating's bad, you know, and that dogma's changed. But the footy physios, like they're really exceptional at what they do, but they have to be good. They have to be pretty good at a lot of things, but not exceptional mm. at one thing. So I think it's just like, they could, they did what they could to manage it, but they only had their basic strategies because that's all they had. Like they are, you know, second to none in managing hamstrings and adductor issues. Mm. Their shoulder stuff is amazing, but the foot was sort of, almost in passing um mm. and most of them i would say didn't necessarily rate the fact that they could be the ones to manage that injury um yeah. with the strength work in that same way and so like i actually did a pd for their physios after i started working there and they were really like all right like let's do this i'm interested now like it's good to know mm. that we can do more than just a bit of hands-on and an orthotic for them so yeah yeah, like I think I think the tides are changing as well. I think the foot and ankle is becoming an area that a lot of physios are aware of, even if they don't know how to do it. They at least know mm. it's time to kind of refer off or help have people help them out. So, but yeah, I yeah. think yeah, it, it is. I think you that all that makes sense, and I think maybe the it's interesting that the feet have traditionally been this area where they're kind of discounted like no one thinks yeah. to train the feet like the rest of their body yeah. like you know yeah we're aware that hammies need to be strong for prevention of hamstring strains and you know quads need to be strong and all of these big muscles it's sort of it's almost intuitive that these need to be strong and, mm. and healthy but we the feet have just been maybe it's it's kind of symbolic that they've just been hidden away in shoes for yeah. all this time and yeah. people just ignore them because it's like out of sight out of mind in a sense and did you find that, I don't know, it'd probably be hard to take statistics on this, but when you came in and started doing a lot more with the feet and ankles, did that affect the, uh, I guess, the rehabilitation or the pre prevention of other areas up, uh, up the chain as well, or hard to say? I don't think I could comment on that because I wasn't yeah. privy to that information. And, and I really was just going in as a consultant to sort of say, here's what I think you should do and sort of handball it with their strength and conditioning coaches and their physios sure. and sort of manage that. I mean, I would assume <laughs> that it would have yeah. reduced things like calf injuries and such, but I, I don't know for sure. Yeah. 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 Fair enough. Yeah. Um, so now you're in clinic and what are you, are you still seeing mostly sports people coming in or is it like a mixture of sports people and general public or? Uh, yeah, it's a huge range actually. And I think it's what I like about having one area of specialty is that I get to see such a broad group of people. Whereas back when I used to work more with dancers or performers, you saw lots of injuries, but like one style of person. And now it's the other way around. Mm -hmm. um, so I have everything from like eight year olds who, if you know, rolled their ankle at bounce kind of thing. Yeah, exactly. To, to, you know, elite distance runners to Ironman triathletes, 
to professional footy players. But, you know, I've also got 50-year-old women who want to go for a hike or yeah. um, someone who's just come off a of bunion repair. So it's it's a really broad client base. I never would have thought that I would see people from so many different walks of life, I guess you would say, mm. or and from different sports. Like I've worked with rock climbers and shot putters and footy players and figure skaters, like all across that now with foot and ankle injuries because I guess everyone's got feet, right? So <laughs> yeah, 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 cool. And uh, so obviously it's a big broad spectrum um, in terms of the demographic that you're seeing. Mm. What do you think, if you could pick maybe a few off the top of your head, what are your the most common um, pain and injuries of the foot and ankle that you see? And so I'm interested in the most common that you see and, and also the most challenging it is to, that uh, most challenging to work with. So I'm just going to preface this with the fact that I see a lot of people who are very far gone in their injury stage. So I don't really uh-huh. get much acute injury anymore. Okay. Yeah. Um, partly because of my schedule being reasonably booked. Uh, yeah, and partly true. because most of my referrals are from sports physicians who are helping people manage injuries coming off like big issues. So, right. you know, I don't see a lot of ankle sprains, for example, although that is still the more popular of the lower limb injuries. So some of the more common ones that I see, um, I see a lot of things that get diagnosed as Achilles tendinopathies mm-hmm. that are not responding to treatment. And I think generally speaking, physios are pretty good at managing tendinopathy. So in the end, that is more of a diagnostic challenge. Um, And then figuring out what's actually the problem to treat that, to then manage what might be underlying that tendinopathy. So like the tendinopathy coming in is probably one of the most common things that I see. Um, I've seen a lot of bunion repairs who are still in a lot of pain a couple of years after their surgery. Uh, which is, which is tough because I think people go into bunion surgery thinking it's going to fix everything. And, but also to Mm. never get told that it's a huge surgery and a huge rehab process. Mm. Um, so those are two of the the big ones. And then I've, I've, I've been seeing a lot of post-op stuff, but years later where the recovery just wasn't great. So I've got a few post-op like perineal tendons at the moment. I've got like some lateral ankle reconstructions that have just, you know, maybe they did 50% of the rehab, but just not, not quite there and are still in mm. pain. So like the, the nature of my client group is people who've tried and haven't succeeded. And now they're coming to me to sort of help them get out of that. So it's, it's a bit yeah. of a challenging group of people in general. Yeah. Is that you've selected for probably the, yeah, the most, some of the most challenging cases anyway. Yeah. 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 And yeah, I guess a lot of that stems from, like you said, either the diagnosis not being quite right and therefore, you know, they might be doing their rehab to the T, but they might be missing some key things because it's mm. been diagnosed wrong mm-hmm. um, and or they haven't been consistent with their rehab or they haven't <laughs> been given, they haven't been given, I suppose, good rehab um, or good progressive rehab and therefore are still struggling. Yeah. Um, so... With the, with the diagnosis, because obviously there are principles of foot function, and I guess this is what we focus on in terms of, you know, obviously people are individuals, you do need, often you do need um, specific treatment for a specific issue, and yep. um, we definitely don't undervalue that, but there are principles of foot function that apply to everyone, um, yep. you know, simple things like range of motion in the big toe and, you know, strength of the intrinsic muscles and the connection between the hips and the feet. And so there's all these things that people can, um, 
work on without necessarily having to have like a specific diagnosis. But what do you find? Well, let's say we'll use the Achilles tendinopathy as an example. Mm-hmm. So someone's come to you, they've been told they've got Achilles tendinopathy and it's not progressing with the rehab. They've been doing it to a T. What, what do you usually find is the issue and, and what do you usually change? Um, well, so the, I mean, the issue then at that point becomes adherence because they're not getting better. They've sort of pulled everything out. Mm. Um, the, the main issue for me is just that just because there's pain at the back of the ankle doesn't mean it's the Achilles, even if the pain is on or around the Achilles. And yeah. so I think, you know, what I spend my time doing is probably 25 minutes of subjective chatting, trying to get the really thorough nitpicky history of like, what kind of pain is it? Exactly where is that pain? When does it get worse? Because there are things that like they tell me what I need to modify for them, right? And where their diagnosis is. So if, for example, someone's been diagnosed as a, a mid-portion tendinopathy, but actually they're a paratendon, you have to manage that differently. And their tendinopathy symptoms won't get better until the other thing is managed first. Mm. So and what, then what it's about educating the them. Yeah. And what would be some of the key differences that you were in that management for someone who, you know, because there probably are people listening who have Achilles tendinopathy or have been told they have it. Mm. Um, so is there, yeah, is there some, again, this wouldn't replace people going in and having this assessed, yeah. Yeah. obviously. <laughs> um, but yeah, w- what do you find are some of the key differences when you, when you differentiate that diagnosis? So the main thing for tendinopathies is that they are localized always. So even when they get worse, the pain is in one spot. So if you have a mid portion, it's in that little pinched area. If you have an insertional, it's in the the outer calcaneus, like on the outside of the heel. And that's where it hurts. And if you go for a 10K run, it warms up and it feels better. And then later, that's where it hurts, but it hurts a lot more in that one exact spot. Mm -hmm. So it's, it's really that it doesn't travel. So if someone is telling me that their pain worsens over time when they're running rather than improves, Um, If their pain travels up and down their Achilles tendon or is in like a broad sort of hard to pinpoint area, to me, that's already telling me that the main problem is not the tendinopathy. It's the other things. So it's not to say that they couldn't have a tendinopathy Mm. underlying or overlapping that as well. But if you're managing the tendinopathy without managing any of the other things that could be irritating that tissue, then you're never really going to get out of that cycle of pain because what, what what helps one tends to make the other feel worse. Mm. which is then a really tricky thing to manage. <laughs> yeah, very much so. Yeah. Yeah. And um, with the bunion surgery, that was one that you also mentioned as well. Mm-hmm. Have you have you worked much with people, I guess, trying to prevent bunion surgery? Um, what has been your experience with bunions as a whole? Like, do, um, you know, obviously surgery is indicated for some people, yep. um, but you know, you need to do the right rehab and, um, are, are there cases where you would say, oh, I think we should try and delay surgery obviously until we've tried some. Yes, treatment. definitely. <laughs> yep. I say that to all of them if I can. Um, yep. I am getting more people coming in trying to prevent themselves having to go for surgery, which is really great that that's even a thing people know about now. Um, I think I've actually got three clients later this week that are new clients who's in their little notes say like, I've got bunions and I want to not have surgery. So it's like, awesome. That's really cool. Um, It's a, I think, I think people are starting like, well, actually, I think people are responding well when I educate them about how we can probably go about reducing the risk of surgery. Um, 
I've got lots of clients who are, you know, they get that sort of like, what, why is these shoes? Like, how come I've, no one's told me about this and all that. <laughs> and it's, it's really interesting. Cause then, you know, I get them, they come in a couple of days later and they're like, Oh my God, I bought these wide toe box shoes and I feel amazing already. And you're like, yeah. half my job is done. <laughs> um, yeah. So, so I'm getting more bunions in that sense. The ones that I've seen post-op are usually the ones that have not succeeded in becoming pain-free. Mm. And so that's really tricky because then I need to explain to them about the surgery and the process and what's happened inside their joints and why they're still in pain and still address the footwear thing. But then they, that can sometimes almost be more confronting because they feel almost ripped off that no one sort of explained that to them before they went in for this major surgery. Mm. Um, and sometimes their pain is really, really tough. Like it's hard to manage sometimes. So yeah, I can, I can definitely imagine. I've never had a surgery myself, but I imagine a surgery, a post-surgical case that has failed to progress or to become pain-free. I mean, just the actual act of getting in there, cutting open, cutting things open, mm. you know, playing around with metal work if that's what's needed and, and whatever the surgery is. But you can imagine that that area could get really sensitized, extra Absolutely. sensitized compared, yeah. to, to, compared to where it was before. Yeah. And um, yeah, so that, that was going to be one of my questions about how you find, you know, post-surgical cases tend to progress versus pre-surgical. Um, but the people who come to you pre-surgical, because mm. obviously there's, there's bunion pain and then there's the bunion deformity. And yeah. I think, you know, a lot of people want to improve the alignment naturally just based on the way it looks and the way yeah. they fit into footwear. Um, how have you found, I guess, responsiveness to rehab in terms of pain versus deformity? Um, again, I, like good because the nature of the people who are coming to see me are seeking me out <laughs> for this kind yeah. of thing. So, you know, I've got a, I've got a captive market when they come to see me. They already know enough about me and what kind of person I am and what I'm going to expect. But um, I would say a lot of my clients, like they don't necessarily love the way their bunions look, but most of them don't care if they're in pain. Mm. They don't care if that bunion still looks the same. They just want to be functional, mm. um, which is really nice because, you know, it's likely not going to dramatically change. Like it might improve a little bit, but if they can get stronger and they're happy in better shoes and we can change their loading patterns and improve the strength of the chain, then most of them are happy to never have to go have surgery, even if they don't love the way their feet look. Yeah. Um, which is quite nice. I think if they're only doing it aesthetically, it's, it's a harder sell on the, on the strength work. I think it's a harder sell on the footwear change because if they're concerned aesthetically about the way their bunions look, they're probably a bit concerned about the shape of a toe box, <laughs> wide toe box shoe. <laughs> so yeah, I mean, for me, most of my clients who come in, are in pain and happy to do the work to get out of pain, regardless of what happens to the look of the toe. So, yeah. Yeah. And for the people that have had surgery and they haven't been told about footwear, I guess at all, mm. it is, a, it's a really interesting one. And I'm, I've been trying to wrap my head around it for years. <laughs> do, do you think it all just comes down to the narrative that bunions are purely genetic and footwear doesn't, how do you think that narrative came about that footwear doesn't make any difference that because it's kind of if you applied the same logic to any other area like if you cast any other area you yeah. expect <laughs> to get stiff and deformed but i wonder why they like obviously there are genetic components so do you yeah, think that's course. just being misconstrued or yeah i i mean that's a million dollar question isn't it yeah. i 
I, I don't know Mul- either. Multi-million. Yeah, exactly. Because yeah. <laughs> like, and, and I, I think it's just because that's just not what you know. Like you, you've, mm. if, if you, your whole life, you've been wearing a more traditional tapered shoe and you don't know that there's other ways for your foot to function, you might not know that you might like, you might not understand that a small shoe could actually be doing that over time. Mm, mm. but it, it like it you know once you do know it's really hard to even grasp that that was a point in time where you might have thought that so you know I'm sympathetic to them because I, I think they just they've never been told they've never even considered it because their feet are sort of I think a lot of people like the feet are sort of dead to them right like they don't like them they don't yeah. really like looking at them they don't really want to think about them and so if you like they've never really thought about what they're wearing other than it being kind of cute no, yeah, and it, I certainly wouldn't place any blame on on the person with the bunion, but it's interesting that even health professionals and surgeons and you know the people yeah. involved in the getting into the surgery and afterwards yeah. don't have that on their radar. It's sort of well, seems... I mean, <laughs> surgeons surgeons don't have anything on their radar after yeah. surgery, and I say that in True. the nicest way because they're very good at what they do, but then they're just like, "Well, I'm done." You should That's be fine. My job. Yeah. yeah, I'm clear. You should be healed. I don't understand. So yeah. I don't think they would have any concept of anything outside of surgery being necessarily important. I mean, there are some excellent surgeons who know that allied health will help their surgery mm. do better. But um, the rest of healthcare professionals, look, I guess, I don't know. So, I mean, hopefully it's just a slow, steady progress where eventually people will start to realize that the footwear matters. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Hopefully. I guess it's like it's the same same thing as what we were talking about with the footy physios. It's just, hmm. you know, it's, it's not their specialty. They, it's yeah. not on their radar. And, and generally there is this sort of narrative that, um, yeah, bunions are genetic. And, uh, yeah, and we always do like to stress that there are genetic components, but environmental mm-hmm. factors usually interact with genetic components to, cre- to create the manifestation of any disease or deformity. Yeah. Um, so I mean an interesting that, case today sorry just as on yeah, that go on. so I have a, a client who came to see me today who was born with bunions like she had a, like yeah. a structural defect in her feet say, yeah. and had to actually wear like calipers I think she called them as a baby for like a year to put her feet straight and then had to wear like metal shoes at the time she's a bit wow. older to yeah. keep her feet straight and so you know she's like the one percent of people who had actually had a genetic structural yes. bunion <laughs> yeah so how do, how do you reckon that works great question (laughs) (laughs) i'm trying to wrap my head around that i'm pretty sure andy um mentioned something similar to me andy bryant for those listening um (laughs) who you may may he's on the podcast long ago but he's one of the podiatrists um top podiatrists in our sort of team but he mentioned someone that he saw who was born with bunions as well and Mm. ever since he said that i was just trying to wrap my head around it because just of the, I guess, my understanding of how bunions form and, you know, there is an interaction of different elements of ligament laxity and overpronation and, you know, these Mm. things. But, yeah, it's, uh, I guess, is there, I wonder if there's like a physical pressure on the feet somehow in the womb. Yeah. Or. (laughs) Who knows? Yeah, I have no idea. I can't say that I've had any other clients who've had bunions at birth. Yeah. I've had yeah, someone who started getting them quite rare. young, but never at birth. And so she, but she was like, she was born with them. So yeah, it was just yeah. interesting. Mm. Very fascinating. Yeah. And so, yeah, it's probably could even be, it's probably less than 1% of people yeah. with bunions. I would say. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> Point oh one yeah. probably. Yeah. 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 Um, so obviously a part, a big part of your approach by the sound of it is 
getting people towards more, uh, you know, we call it natural footwear. Some people yep. call it barefoot footwear, just footwear that allows the foot to function more naturally. And one of those yep. elements is like a, a wide toe box, which yep. is usually the easiest, um, I guess, transition to make because usually it feels good. Once you get yeah. over the fact that you kind of look like you're wearing clown shoes, then yeah. um, it, that's really easy and people go, wow, I didn't know shoes could or should feel like this because mm. like my toes can splay. Mm. Um, but how have you found, I think there was a, there was a post I really liked, um, I think it was more recent about how, you know, even if a, cha- a change in load is a change in load and mm. even if that's something that you want to, do and it's like a, a a valuable change in load it can still have dramatic effects and that can be that can create symptoms in someone huge and yeah so yeah what's been your experiences with that and what's like your usual approach with uh, i guess you know whether it's footwear or just exercises or any kind of changes in load um i mean so for footwear i'm a i'm a big fan of a transition type of shoe for most of my clients because yeah the full flat is often too much. And the last thing I want to do, especially because most of my clients come in injured is mm. overload an area that was already probably underloaded already due to injury. So I, I mean, my most, my most go-to shoe is Topo um, because okay. they have a heel drop still or can have a heel yeah. drop, but the toe box width is there. So, I mean, I would love if there were more sort of natural footwear brands that had the ability, ability to transition people mm. um, because going from, a traditional running shoe or a heel or lots of wedges or things that my clients wear or like boots to work and stuff to go from that to full flat quickly is too much as most of us have either had our own personal experience with yeah. or, um, or we've seen enough in clinic to know that like it can lead to other problems. So I, I encourage my clients to get a transition shoe for at least for physical, for going for their walks and for doing their um, kind of day-to-day meandering around. And then I do most of my strength training with them barefoot to start building that up. And then it's a really Mm. gradual integration of spending more time with less height, um, less support, depending on the situation. I mean, some of my clients I'll transition by putting an orthotic in a natural shoe so that they can be supported in a better setup Mm. and allow for us to sort of adapt that. Um, I do, I mean, I spend a ton of time on education with all of my clients because I think well, I think it's important to know why you're doing something. Um, I think it empowers them to actually then want to do it. But so if I sort of explain the timeline, because I think once people are really interested in the process of the wider toe box and feeling better, they're like, what's the next step? I want to know. I'm interested. Uh, And so that sometimes I have to pull the reins back and just be like, let's just do this with a structured plan. Let's make sure you're strong enough to tolerate that. Because if we know, I don't want them coming in six months later telling me they have like a raging plantar fasciitis because they didn't have enough strength in their foot when they started doing like a 5k walk and a barefoot shoe type yeah. thing. So it's, it's a, it's a process over time. Um, yeah. Yeah. It's interesting what you said about you usually get them strength training barefoot because, you know, a lot of people would think about strength training as the high amount of load that, and mm-hmm. like this big input of load. Mm-hmm. But I would say a lot of, especially from my experience with clients, even with people who are in pain, they can usually get through, you know, maybe a 20 or 30 minute rehab session barefoot. But it's actually the sort of accumulative load outside of that, that would be too much. Um, So if they were to go into a barefoot shoe, even though that seems maybe less intense or less 
you know, less of a big bolus of load. Um, yeah. It's when they're in that shoe all day, they're standing, they're walking, you know, mm. especially if they go running, mm. then that's that accumulative load really is what tends to build up. To- yeah, 100%. And I, I mean, I've had a few clients who got really gung-ho when I started explaining the difference in footwear who, even though I was like, okay, it's a transition process, you know, <laughs> two weeks later came in, essentially burned all their other shoes. We're like, I bought these Vivos, but my foot hurt. And I'm like, oh my God. <laughs> Okay. Yeah. Um, yeah. I think, you know, any, any change done quickly is often not sustainable. And that's, that's true, not just in like rehab, but like in life, right? If you change true. something too quickly, it's often really hard to maintain that. So mm. yeah, I just, I, I, I try to explain the process. I try to explain to them, you know, they can earn, they can earn things faster if they do the work as well. So if they don't want to spend time doing rehab, the process is slower. <laughs> yeah. If they don't want to do targeted foot stuff, that's fine. It's just going to take an extra couple months probably. Um, but if they are training hard and like, you know, their feet look good and the next time I see them, they're able to move them and they're doing things like that, we start transitioning faster. So for a lot of my clients who want to get out of their orthotics, that's often a selling point. Um, if you do the work, we can, sl- we can pull them out sooner usually in time yeah. and still with baby steps, but yeah. Yeah. And that's, that's generally our approach as well is like, you shouldn't necessarily have to be doing all these rehab and prehab exercises all the time. And no. I think that's the, that's the idea with natural footwear and, and doing, uh, doing lots of activity in natural footwear or barefoot is that all of that becomes foot strengthening and ankle yeah. strengthening and mobile mobilization. Um, but in order to get there, <laughs> having some foot you may actually never get there unless you do build up that baseline level of strength and mobility um yeah targeted exercise yeah Yeah, and again you know again most of my clients if if like if neutral is sort of you know here then like my clients are coming from quite far back so i'm actually just bringing Mm. them to neutral before we even can go anywhere so um so they do need like facilitated rehab they need targeted stuff to strengthen those areas but Mm. my long-term goal with all of them is that they can just integrate that into their day-to-day lives or at the gym that they can just do a couple exercises barefoot and like they'll get more out of it so you know same kind of thing like the harder you work the less you'll have to on the long run yeah yeah (laughs) yeah yeah it's just and that's that's the thing is getting through that initial it's a bit of a slog. It can be a bit of a slog oh, to totally. do that work. It's, it, a lot of it's pretty boring. Yep. Um, you tedious. know, you much prefer to be out there running or playing your sport, mm-hmm. um, but instead you're stuck at home doing calf raises yeah, and, and toe push downs. Yeah. <laughs> and balancing and, you know, and I, I think one of our focuses is trying to make things as fun as possible. We're very mm-hmm. into play-based training yeah. and, and even play-based rehab where it's applicable, but there are, at the end of the day, you know, if pain and injury is about an imbalance between capacity and demand, you mm. do have to just spend some time building your capacity. And yep. sometimes that can be boring and sometimes it can suck, but yeah, uh, it, it ends up being much more enjoyable in the long run when you're not in this cycle of pain and dysfunction. Yeah, so that you can then play long-term or go for yeah. your runs without having to kind of do every two months, like a month off because you've injured yourself again. It's a, yeah, it's a, it's sort of the, the carrot long that I dangle with clients is like, if you do the work, then you won't have to do it forever, but you have to, you have to do it for a while for it to be helpful. So, yeah. Yeah. Cause people, I think people need to see that light at the end of the tunnel rather than mm. like, well, you've now got a life sentence of yeah. 30 minutes of boring rehab <laughs> exercises every day. Every day. Sure yeah. This. And, um, you know, like for me, I had this, uh, 
quadriceps tendinopathy in both knees when I was mm. pretty when I was uh, early twenties, and I did a, a good solid nine month chunk of rehab of just very slow progressive um strengthening of the quads and all like a whole lower limb really um Mm. although this was before i'd started to get fully into all the foot stuff yeah okay um but you know even if my feet and ankles were functioning really well i I would have still had to do some direct knee work and quad work um and yeah it's even now if I slack off a bit on my strength training or, you know, if I do like a way too much, I will feel like a little whisper in my mm. knees of like, Hey, mm-hmm. remember, like you had this issue a few years ago <laughs> and, you know, it'd be nice maybe not to have that, but also it's like a, it's almost like a method of my body keeping me honest and saying like, yeah, you, you know, you're not doing some of this stuff and, and, you know, strength training, it's not my absolute favorite thing to do. I, I prefer to be hacky sacking or cartwheeling yeah. or, you know, <laughs> Which play, you do well. playing yeah. around. Yeah. <laughs> and, um, but it's sort of like a good reminder. Like that, I think there's benefits to having strong legs and strong, mm. strong bodies besides just being able to play. It's like just, you know, there's so many health benefits to that as well. And um, neural and hormonal benefits to strength training. So yeah, it's kind of like a good reminder for me <clears throat> to just keep it yeah. up. <laughs> yeah, and I mean, you know, some of my clients who will six months later or something have dropped off a lot of their strength work, come back in a bit sore, and they're like, "Oh, I guess I have to do this forever now." And like, I try to reframe that with them, and be like, "What a great thing for you to yeah. have a very simple solution to get rid of your problems if you just go to the gym twice a week." Like, yeah. That means you're going to be fitter and healthier anyhow. So how fabulous! Your body's already telling you what to do. Like. I think that's pretty yeah. good. Like, okay, you've got an excuse now to stay fit. Like people want an excuse because most of us are not intrinsically motivated to be fit and active, unfortunately. So yeah. to have an, an intri- like a, a motivation, even if it is a little bit of pain, at least they're there going to then do the work. Yeah, that's, that's such a good reframe because it's much better than getting, you know, 30 years down the line and being really weak, really sedentary, Yeah. Um, you know, probably lots of areas of pain and then yeah, yeah. it's an even harder slog to get it. Whereas, uh, yeah. you know, if you just get that little reminder, it's a bit of pain, it doesn't really, yeah. you know, it's not like debilitating obviously, but it's like, oh, that's right. I need to be doing just some strength exercise. Like for me, it doesn't take long at all or it doesn't take really much at all hmm. for things to come back. Yeah. And then usually when I when I get back into the strengthening, I'm like, no, this actually feels really good. Yeah, <laughs> you know, it's like that's right. Like I, I don't know why why I wasn't wasn't doing this more before. Yeah, um, I mean, because play is fun, but it's also, I mean, like play is hard if you're not fit, right? Like that's the thing. Yeah. It's like anytime I have clients when I show them stuff on bouldering walls or if I've done monkey bars or something and they're just like, Oh my God, I haven't done that in years. I'm like, yeah, you actually have to, you have to work pretty hard to get strong enough to play again. Cause as adults, mm. like we've lost so much of that strength in our youth going into our twenties. And then you want to do it when you're 30 or 40 and you're like, Oh man, it's actually really hard to move my body weight around. Yeah. I think that's where so many people, um, yeah, come face to face with injuries when they have made, they, maybe have memories of playing a sport mm. or something like that when they're young and they're like, oh, that was really fun. Oh, maybe I, you know, like yeah. I know I need to exercise. I want to do something fun. I'll just go play netball or I'll go play soccer. Yeah. But they have been sitting and, and in, you know, very restrictive shoes for the last 20 years and their body is just nowhere near ready to tolerate that load. Yeah. And, and I mean, life, life stress, you know, I've got yeah. clients who are like, 
well, I used to do this in my 20s. I'm like, okay, did you have three kids, a full-time job? <laughs> and uh, I don't know, like a mortgage repayment and a sick parent? Like probably not. So yeah, it all, it all, plays <laughs> it all ends it. up. Yeah. Yeah. And that's such a tough one because, I mean, I felt I, when I was that age, I felt really, that was when I was 20. I think I was 21 or 22 when I was going through that. And it was like mm. a couple, couple of years in general, but it was very like confronting and frustrating because it's like, well, what do you mean? I can't go rock climbing because I can't land uh, mm. with my knees and I can't even go down to the park and play frisbee with my mates or just all these things. And you start getting in your head like, oh, this is like, it's, um, you start to feel a bit hopeless. But if you, you know, which again comes back to just making some sacrifices, taking a break from those things that you love doing and just putting in the work to then be able to do the, the rest of it long term. Yeah. yeah, yeah. And it's, I mean, that's a tough, I mean, that's half of what we do as physios, right? Is that it's a, that tough sell is like, if you do this work, you can get back to those things, but you have to do the work. Otherwise it's a vicious cycle of doing it, getting in pain, doing it, getting in pain. And mm. yeah, yeah. And so, so many people are in that cycle for, so long decades yeah <laughs> yeah and I guess that's that's well generally that's most of the people that come to us because or, or to you and mm. you know to practitioners that practice this way because they're like mm-hmm. well I'm actually kind of sick of this cycle and yeah. maybe you know the, they're hopeful that there is another way that can get them out of that cycle and um yeah or even like in those those clients the ones who are ready to get out of it as well like sometimes it's just telling yeah. them that there's lots of stuff they can still be doing because Sometimes I don't know about you, but like if you have an injury, it's it's pretty demoralizing, and so you kind of yeah. just like curl up on yourself, and you're like, oh, my foot hurts, I can't do anything. And you're like, actually, mm. here's a hundred different things you could be doing, and you know, like I, you want people out doing whatever they can, so they can at least get some endorphins and some growth hormones and like all these other beautiful things from being active, like some dopamine True. and all that kind of stuff. So that's like I've got like a whole bevy of personal trainers and coaches and things that I refer people off to very quickly because I'm like, just start doing stuff and things will feel better, you know? Yeah. Yeah. That's so important in the focus on what you can do rather than what you can't do. Mm. And yeah, for people listening at home that, that goes for pretty much anything because we all have certain restrictions and certain limitations, (laughs) but if you, yeah, if you really dial in a bunch of things that you can do and that you do enjoy doing, Mm. Um, that can make all the difference to just your your mindset and yeah like you said there's all these other aspects that that will affect your health like if you can maybe if you can't run yet but you can go for a walk out in nature or you can go for a hike then do that like don't don't feel sad that well you can still feel sad that you can't run right (laughs) now but um, don't let that stop you from doing the things that you can do because that will help you sleep better that will help your stress management that will help all these things Um, and and I think especially your mindset Mm. so that you can sort of uh, follow through with a a rehab journey yeah Um, so and there was a couple of other posts in your on your Instagram that I thought were really good and we may have explored before in the podcast, but I'm interested to hear your experience with it. There was, there was one I really liked where it was basically a graphic of a person standing on this line mm. that was going down <laughs> and then up. And it's like what, what you see or like the, the current moment in time mm. versus the, the zoomed out view where it's like just a little downward slope and then trending lots of those downward slopes, but trending upward. Yeah. 
So certainly that was my experience with the rehab. Mm. Um, do you ever get anyone who's completely linear with rehab or is there, <laughs> do, you, <laughs> do you think there's always some ups and downs along the way? Uh, <clears throat> I think there's always ups and downs. Yeah. Uh, I've had some who are close to linear, but but no, I don't think I've ever had someone have the perfect, like, no, not a single setback, not a single, mm-hmm. you know, thing. Unfortunately, I just, I just don't think it's realistic. I think there's always ups and downs. So, um, I mean, that post, I often put that post up to remind me as well, because mm-hmm. I had one or two days where a couple of clients in a row had all hit that point. And as a clinician, that's really hard, right? Because you're like, like oh, what am I doing wrong? What am I doing wrong? What have I done? <laughs> And I have to remind myself that like sometimes they're just in that little lull. And then if I talk to them more about it, it's like, well, what else is going on in your life right now? Or what else did you do yesterday or whatever? And it's a just to remind them that like they've come from, I don't know, eight out of 10 pain, not able to walk 500 meters. And yes, now they've got a three out of 10 pain, but they did a 3K walk. And it's you kind of lose perspective as you go further in rehab because you forget in a good way. You forget what it was that you came in with. You're only Mm. in the present and so yeah. sometimes I hate having to remind people that they came in in a lot of pain, but sometimes yeah. it's a good thing to be able to say like, you know, well, like six months ago when I did my objective assessment, you know, you, your knee to wall was one centimeter and it was excruciating in the front of your ankle. And now it's at eight and it's a tight calf, but you know, like just those little things. And I'm like, Oh, really? Oh, I didn't yeah. know that. And I, yeah, I think it's an important thing because, because you're, you're only ever in the present with your injury. So yeah. you have to have yeah, a good your, perspective. Your baseline kind of changes like once you can do a certain thing that becomes your normal and then you know if that starts to hurt or if you suddenly can't do that anymore it's like what but it's like uh it's like oh no I'm failing or I'm going really backwards but usually it's just like a little dip like a little blip and yeah that that perspective and that's part of why with this with this new um course I was telling you Mm. about this new um we call we call it the trek to base camp um as like a (laughs) which is like a a part of this metaphor of you know the journey to foot freedom and you have to get to base camp in order to have the foundational skills and habits and things that you need and yeah i think a big habit and skill um that we try and instill with in people is just actually taking notes at every day and checking in with your body and mm-hmm. seeing where you are at how many you know if it is rehab that you're doing or training then how many sets and reps are you doing how did that how did it feel how hard did it feel and mm. And I think being able to have those notes, because it, it is, and I've found it personally and with clients, it's very easy to forget where you were even last week, but let alone last month or, you know, six months ago. And totally. there are often times with my, um, some of my clients where, you know, it's been a, a while since a check-in and we, we check in and it's like, so let's actually go back, review where were you at when we started, where where are you at now, what how have the goals changed? And often when we do that, it's like, oh, I'm actually way that it's easy to forget where what your even your original goal was. Yeah. Um yeah. like there was one one client who her original goal was to be able to walk more than three K. Um and I I think it was over about six months, and I think both of us would have lost track of that if I hadn't written it down right. in the yeah. session. And now she's walking like 10K with no issues. Great. Nice. Um, and then so it's like, but she'd forgotten too. She's like, oh, that was my goal in the first one. She's like, oh, yeah. well, I'm definitely doing that. <laughs> so, you know, mm-hmm. having 
having those notes and having, I think, especially someone tracking their own and being able to reflect on their own progress mm. is, is mm. really important for being like, yes, this is a dip, but look how far I've come. Yeah. And I mean, sometimes things that are helpful just accidentally in clinic is like if I've recorded something on the client. So like if they were doing a calf rise and I was recording it just, you know, to show them what they were doing or they did a knee to wall and we just wanted to get that on camera and I send it to them. And it's like in six months we do it again. I can show them that things have changed yeah. quite tangibly. And yeah. so I'll, I'll sometimes encourage my clients to take videos of themselves doing early stage rehab. Um, and yeah. then, and you know, that way in three months we can look and be like, yeah, but like on day one, you could barely move your toes. And now you're like, they're wiggling around and you can use green TheraBand, no problem. Like it's, it's all good progress. Even if you're not, if you're not, if you, even if you haven't reached all your goals, that's still good progress forward. Yeah. Um, and I know like for my, for me, when I train, so my personal trainer, I do um, a lot of calisthenics based like strength work. Yeah. Um, I record a lot of stuff because he wants me to send it to him so he can keep an eye on how I'm progressing. And like, I'm quite grateful for the fact that I have videos of my handstands from five years ago. Yeah. Because on days where I'm not hitting them, I'm just like, oh, right, I have come really far. But you yeah. easily forget that when that's suddenly something you can kind of do. Not that I can do amazing handstands yet, but <laughs> we're getting there. So. <laughs> getting there yeah yeah handstands are one of those ones I struggled for a long time with handstands before mm. I got coaching but yeah I, I kind of wish I had more videos from before <laughs> I started the coaching because I kind of only started filming once I was but mm. better at them I yeah think. um <laughs> naturally but yeah. um you know it'd be really cool to look back at where they started and, mm. and where they've come but mm. you know if I if I at least really because it's kind of like riding a bike now you just jump up into a handstand and it's all good but Lucky when you. you think about it it's like that, yeah that's actually you know quite a complex skill that I worked really hard to to even be able to do yeah right um, but yeah and I think the videos um that, that's something else that we include as well as people take baseline videos oh, yeah, of certain great. tests and I think that's also really powerful because visual evidence like seeing is believing it's like yeah. well I was there a month ago and now I'm here so I'm definitely progressing and I think rehab in rehab, there's a, a bit of an element of faith and belief and you just sort totally. of have to trust the process and be like, <laughs> well, you know, if I do this work, my body's going to adapt and the function's going to improve. And, you know, we're, we're pretty big on sort of having function based goals as, as well as pain goals, but we sort of, you know, want to, we tend to want to focus more on the function based yeah. goals because they're much more tangible and totally. more objective. Yeah. Um, and pain can be very influenced by other factors, mm. but if your function's improving and I, I think, you know, if you have a regular check-in, you may not see it so much in a week, but you'll generally see it in a month or yeah. you know, over months, you'll definitely see differences in your function. And if you've got regular videos of that, then or mm. photos then mm. it can really help uh fuel that faith I suppose and it's like okay I'm getting better yeah. yeah absolutely and like a photo of the foot you know for the clients who do have a bunion for example sometimes if they I'm like why don't you take a picture of your feet when you get home and then see what's see what's difference in three months or even even you know for some of them it's even in a month they start to they see it, the smallest of differences when they've been wearing the toe spacers and the wide toe box shoes mm. and doing a bit of work they're like oh I think my toes are lying flatter and you're like actually they are because look <laughs> yeah. ah from day one they were really curled um Confirmed. so yeah so I encourage a lot of people to do that if they if they come in with a bit of a for lack of a better term a deformity of their foot um I do encourage them to take a picture or I take a little video or something of it so that we can see because a lot of times like those claw toes 
do start to settle down or that bunion, mm. like the space between that, uh, that pinky starts to kind of wake up a little bit or whatever. So mm. it's nice for them to see that. And then they come in yeah. all excited too. I can move my toes. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> we, some of our most excited posts in the community so far have been people going, I can finally pick up the hacky sack with my foot. Because <laughs> <laughs> people will work for months and months to do that and they just feel like it's impossible. Mm. And then I, I really like that one because it's so tangible. It's like you mm. can either pick it up or you can't. Yeah. And, <laughs> and people are like, oh, I'm never going to get this. And then one day they unlock it and they're like, yes, <laughs> I, yeah. I can do the hacky yeah um and then that unlocks other fun things that you can do as yeah. well and so it's it's good to have those little little wins along the way even yeah. if it's not like that you're achieving your big big goal i think in clinic for me the one that people come in most excited about is moving their pinky yeah because they're just like oh, look look, look michelle unlock. they take their shoe off and they're like oh my god i can do it it's been three <laughs> months you know they're like it won't move and then all of a sudden one day they get it and they're just they're just like i didn't believe you i didn't think it yeah. was gonna happen but here it is yeah <laughs> Yeah. And it's such a good feeling. The, the, yeah. It, I think especially with feet, it seems so small. It's like, what? cool, you can move your pinky yeah. toe. But if that, if that's something that's been jammed <laughs> up and locked up and, and you understand feet, it's like, yes. That is, yeah, yeah, exactly. Like, high five. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> we should make a little certificate um, for them now and be like, I can move my pinky. Yeah. <laughs> pinky toe movement. Yeah. Tick, tick. Um, hacky sack pickup. Yes, absolutely. Yeah. Some gold yeah. stars. Mm. And um, I'm interested, obviously... As we've discussed, everyone is different, um, you know, in terms of their background and their injury and, and everything. But are there are there certain exercises that you pretty much give to everyone? <laughs> like, are there, or is it is it very? It just always very different between clients. Or are um, there certain exercises that are just basic that pretty much everyone should do for during or do some some variant of or some level of uh, whether it's for rehab or prevention. So every, everyone has different variations on this, but I would say that almost every client will get a toe push down of some sort mm-hmm. um, to try to isolate a little bit of foot strength for most of my clients, again, who are coming in far below baseline, right? Um, so to get and them, for, yep. Yeah, so I was going to say, what's, um, how would you describe the toe push down? So the toe push down is usually with a band, although I do teach it with the foot just on the floor, but the foot is on the floor. There's a band around an individual toe. The band lifts the toe up passively, and then you're pushing the toe long and flat down to the floor against the band. Mm-hmm. Yeah. So for the big toe, that's working your abductor halysis and your FHL and your FHB, um, and it's getting all the little lumbricals firing up as well. So I like to isolate the intrinsics a little bit with that type of strength because most of my clients are coming in with intrinsics that are almost non-existent as far as their size um, and function. Mm-hmm. Um, and so I do the big toe and the pinky for almost everybody. And then people who've had pretty significant metatarsal issues or anything around there will also have to do toes two, three, and four, <laughs> which they right. hate, but they do. You, you do them individually? Yeah. Or, yeah. Yeah. Uh, and you'll usually find one is really a struggle. And it's often the one that's near the metatarsal that's been injured, obviously, which is an interesting thing. Mm-hmm. Um, but I, I like those. I've, but some of my clients will do that as an isometric without the band because they can't get the band. Some of my clients mm. will do them in standing. I've had a pregnant lady that I taught to do it in standing because she couldn't actually do it in sitting because her, her belly was like in the way. Um, right. So I'm, ha- I'm happy to sort of tease it out and modify it for people. But I do, I do like it as an is- isolated, if I can use that term, um, intrinsic foot exercise. Mm-hmm. Um, and then 
if I had to choose one other one that I would like insist everyone do is a, is a calf rise variation of some sort. So, you know, again, a lot of my clients are starting against the wall on two feet, or we're doing a seated variation because we can't load it fully upright. But I think if you're looking for a very simple thing to do, that's good for your foot and your lower leg, which reduces your risk of injuries in your foot, (laughs) your shin, your knee, your hip, um, Hmm. getting strong calves is, is, is simple and effective. So yeah, even if it's nothing fancy, it can be as, as simple as a single leg calf rise. It doesn't have to be off the step. It doesn't have to be, you know, leaning against the wall. It doesn't have to be doing fancy stuff, but if you're doing a nice, slow, steady single leg rise, like it's a really efficient exercise to get a, a good bang for your buck. Yeah. I was just doing those this morning. Actually. Yeah. <laughs> I, part of the, part of the, cause I'm, I'm currently doing the 42 day trek along with everyone who yeah. signed up for like the first expedition, I suppose. Um, <laughs> and part of it was like a, a calf raise test and Tom, who's Tom, who's a physio up here, breath performance physio. Oh, yeah. he's, yep. he's been on our podcast a few times. He said, oh, I did 100 double leg calf raises and then tested my single leg uh, max, my max single leg calf raise. So I said, oh, okay, I'll, I'll give that a go as well. Okay. <laughs> and then, uh, yeah, very sore calves for the next few days. Yeah, but, no doubt, yeah. Um, I think, you know, the only, time, the only time I'd had a similar soreness in my calves was after my first run in barefoot shoes uh, <laughs> after sort of, even though I'd been walking in barefoot shoes for a long time, when I started running in them, my calves were shot for like a week. Um, so the, the point there is that the calf raise, you know, yes, it's like a bit of an isolated exercise, but it pretty much perfectly mimics what the foot has to do during gait. And walking yeah. And, and it, like a good, a good single leg rise done with your toes staying long and flat and good weight across the whole forefoot will get good work through your perineals, through your tip posts, through your FHL, through your gastrox, mm. and then the whole chain being supported, you're going to get your hamstrings, your glutes, your quads, like everything is sort of working, right? Like when you start to fatigue on a calf rise, I don't know about you, but like my hamstrings and my glutes start to get tired, right? So it's, yeah. it's sort of like, it's the whole leg that's functioning as a unit. And I just think there is such a there's such a simple thing I mean they're often done poorly and I would say I teach a lot of times how to change that but um yeah yeah it's a good one what do you find are the usual technique faults with a calf raise um a a couple main ones one is using the hip thrust forward so it's using propulsion to get off the ground rather Uh than actually using the foot um that's a really common one that's a really common one in athletes because they often run or are fast and so they'll pop off the ground by pulling themselves forward and kind of thrusting the pelvis towards the wall rather than up to the ceiling Um, a slight bend of the knee to then sort of pop up off the ground is sort of probably the second one so again using the thigh to facilitate that so they bend the knee so they can kind of pull themselves upright with their quad and then extend it yeah Yeah. Mm -hmm. Um, and then the last one is is either like really heavily scrunching the toes or rolling off that big toe kind of halfway up, just going into full loss of control. So, you know, my main cues for calf rises are long flat toes, equal weight across the forefoot and up, not forward. Um, Mm. And most Mm. people, including my elite athletes, (laughs) if, if they are historically kind of propulsing with that and I put them in a line and I kind of keep my hand where I want them to be. And I'm like, start with your foot and rise up from the foot the usual comment is, this is actually really hard. <laughs> like, yeah. Yes, great. Um, yeah. Or they'll say, oh, I actually really feel it in my calves. And I'm like, oh, also great. That's yeah. what you should be doing right now. So, yeah. yeah. 
Yeah, because it's it's good when you can do an isolated exercise like that, and you see how someone um, compensates or maybe you know has certain movement behaviors. You can. It's a pretty safe bet that some level of that compensation is being expressed when in, out while they're running or doing a sport or yeah. you know, they're not yeah. either not pushing to, through their big toe properly or yeah, they're using momentum to thrust instead of strength. And obviously it's calf raises are different to running or jumping, yes, for course. example, yeah. obviously, but it's, it's the, that principle is when you slow something down and get it really smooth. I think it's a weightlifting mm. expression, like slow is smooth, smooth is fast. So yeah. Yeah, absolutely. Can, if you can really slow it down and, and get nitty gritty on the technique, then you're, you're um, ideally that capacity and that those neural pathways will express themselves in the more complex. Um, yeah. Movements. And I mean, I would say in my experience, like athletes are not often lacking power. Yeah. That's, that's, true. they're good at that. I mean, there's even been some interesting discussion that I've been reading about the fact that dancers, right. So I'm going to, I'm going to rule out the Aussie ballet dancers because they are proportionally quite really strong compared to a lot of other dancers because they do really exceptional oh. strength work. Um, but a lot of dancers, everyone thinks dancers are really, really strong, but there's some, some thought or some research and stuff coming out sort of saying, actually, they're so well conditioned neuromuscularly to sort of just put themselves in those positions that they can perform and put the power out and make those lines look even when they don't have the strength to do it. And hmm. even when they're exhausted, which is often what leads to the injuries, right? They actually don't have the underlying strength to keep going, but they have the hundreds and thousands of hours of training to lift their leg and point their foot. And they wow. just, they just do it. They just throw into it and do it gracefully, but they have nothing supporting it. And so, yeah, it's an interesting thing with athletes. Like they, they can push through, they can power through, but they're often lacking that little underlying base of strength that they need to do those yeah. movements better. Yeah, that is really interesting. Yeah, because, you know, there's an element and everyone talks about you get better at your sport by doing your sport. And there's like mm -hmm. this element of specificity, which is obviously really important. Like you're mm -hmm. not going to get good at dancing just by doing calf raises. No, but <laughs> definitely <if> not. You, <laughs> otherwise, I'd be a great, great dancer. Yeah. Um, but if you if you are lacking those certain baselines of control and strength, then often doing your sport can get you injured, which is, yeah, yeah, the, absolutely. Which is the people you see. Yeah. Um, so you, obviously you need a mix of both. Mm. Um, so maybe to wrap up, I'm, yeah. I'm uh, interested to hear of, of all of everything you're, I guess you've experienced. What do you think is your like biggest struggle when you're helping clients and what's like your favorite part of helping clients? Ooh. Big question, but. <laughs> um, my favorite part of helping clients is it's probably discharging them, if I'm honest, because it means they oh, yeah. don't need me anymore, right? So, yeah, um, so I mean, that's one, one thing. My, my, my actual favorite part is when they come in and tell me that they've done something that they've been wanting to do and couldn't because of their injury, mm. pain, restriction. And they come in and they're really excited and they're like, you know, I performed on the weekend or I stood all day at a wedding or I went for a hike and I feel great. Like that really brings me a lot of joy. Um, and like the other, the other thing that brings that I, I really enjoy is um, at the end of an initial assessment when I say, you know, do you have any other questions or comments or is there a concern? When someone tells me that I've given them hope that they'll be able to get through this, I'm like, that, that for me is oh, the whole yeah. reason I'm a physio, right? I'm like, oh, <laughs> I won't cry, but I kind of want to. Um, <laughs> and I, I look at, 
it's one of the things I feel really grateful for because I, I get that a lot now from my clients. Like I feel hopeful that we can do something about this. And I really, mm. like, I really thrive on that as a clinician because I'm like, good, that's what I want you to feel so that we can actually do this together. Yeah. Um, the biggest, the biggest struggle, the biggest struggle is when I, I just can't help someone get there, get there. And mm. that's difficult for me because I'm, I like to help people, uh, and it's difficult for my clients, but there are some people who just don't recover the way you want them to, and just aren't progressing how you expect them to. And I, you know, it's a real struggle. I, <laughs> I've been told at a previous job that I care too much about my clients. Um, and so when my clients are, you know, not doing the, the things that I'm hoping that I'm expecting them to be doing or that they're not going where I want them to be going, uh, I struggle with that as well. And I know it's more of a struggle for them because obviously it's their life, but I, I'm like, what else can I do? How more, how more can I help mm. them? And so for me, that's, that's a challenge as a physio is to sort of just be like, well, I might have to just send them to someone else or refer them on or sort of yeah. accept that. And that's, that's tough. <laughs> yeah. yeah. And I guess there's sometimes, well, there's only so far your, our scope as physios go yep. and there's only, um, you know, I'm, I imagine there's a lot of people who have, you know, some kind of musculoskeletal pain, but it's being contributed to by other issues, systemic Absolutely. inflammation and yep. sleep and overall general health. And so, yeah, you know, if, sometimes it's, it's actually – you know, someone will have a pain, but it's, it's very overwhelming how many different things they would have to change in their life in order for that pain to be yeah. gone permanently. Yeah, absolutely. And it's, you know, it's overwhelming for us as physios to try and give that, give all of that advice to them. And, and frankly, we can't be the person that sort of helps them through Ooh. all of those different lifestyle changes. And we can, we can do as much as we can to sort of bring their awareness level to that. But at the end of the day, you know, the, the pain is a, I guess, more of a, a symptom or a manifestation of, oh, well, this gets kind of deep, yeah. but it's like, <laughs> it's like a, a disconnection from our nature as humans in a lot of ways because of all mm. of the, I guess, artificial um, surfaces, artificial light, artificial mm. foods, mm. you know, all these things that disrupt our, our natural, um, I suppose, to, to use that word, our, our natural biology or physiology. Yeah. And um, yeah, sometimes that's, that's very hard to overcome, but yeah. that, I guess that's part of what we're trying to do with um, this this course. This trek to base camp is sort of drip feed lessons about all of those different yeah. elements of lifestyle and environment, and help people build a habit. Because you know, as as you would, I'm sure, agree with, if people don't build a habit, then it's just you know. You can be excited for maybe a week or two, but if it's not habitual, if you're not actually in the habit of doing something, then yeah. you usually won't continue to get done. Yeah, yeah, it's tough. Yeah. yeah. Um, and actually, one last one, one last thing I want to talk <laughs> about is uh, just the exciting, um, I guess, new collaboration or partnership with you and Andy. Because Andy is, uh, I mentioned him before, yep. but he's the podiatrist in our network and you have um, obviously connected with him for this Better Foot project. So, mm. uh, and you've, well, at the time of this recording, you've got your first um, in-person workshop or course uh, coming up on the weekend. Yep. So do you want to just drop a bit of a, I guess, a plug about that and what the, what the vision is there? Yeah, so... I mean, I'll give you a bit of a background. I'll, I'll be brief, but so, so Andy and I actually met through Instagram and um, mm. sort of be, just became friends in real life, which was great. Um, and so we both just felt like there's a big gap in the market for 
allied health practitioners, and I'm, I'm going to include doctors and sports physicians in there as well, to assess and treat injuries and pain in the foot and ankle. So there's lots of great stuff out there for, um, you know, just just getting foot function and things to improve. But I, the, you know, when the, the clients that I see are coming in injured or postoperatively and stuff, and so I think we have decided that we want to just sort of help clinicians be better able to handle a foot or ankle that comes into their clinic because it's a bit of a gap in our education, um, mm. as noted earlier. As, um, as noted, yeah. Yeah, exactly <laughs> for both of us. Um, and so we, it's just a bit of an overwhelming thing to do individually. So we decided to do it together. Um, so the first one we're doing is just an introduction to rehab. So it's going to be a brief kind of overview of foot function and anatomy, but not really what we're aiming for. We're going to be aiming to just do about two hours or two and a half hours of here's our favorite introduction to rehab stuff that we use in clinic regularly. And if you do the basics well, then you can really help a lot of people already. And then you can get to play more with your other skill set as they go down. Um, So that's our course this weekend, which we're excited about. We sold it out. We've got wait lists. So we're pretty excited about that. That is Um, epic. Yeah, and then, and then we're just going to see where this goes. There'll be more courses coming up, um, different types of courses, hopefully some online stuff, but we'll see, we'll see how it all goes down the track. Yeah. Yeah, yeah. well, I'm, I'm certainly keen to follow along. And um, yeah, like, like we said, at the time of the, this recording, it's this weekend and it's sold out. So yeah. you've missed this one, but um, <laughs> if you're a pro listening. But um, yeah, by the sound of it, there'll be more likely in Melbourne, possibly around... Australia um so yeah eventually internationally as well (laughs) yeah yeah um so yeah I'm super keen to get get to one and uh ideally I think eventually maybe um we can have like a round two be cool to get you and Andy on yeah possibly at the same time and and we can talk through it all and be great um, just have like a yeah like a explore that whole concept after you guys have done a a bunch of the the courses yeah see hopefully people like them (laughs) Yeah, I'm sure they will. Yeah, I'm keen to hear how they yeah. go. Yeah, we'll let you know. Um, yeah, sweet. Well, thanks again for coming on. Thanks and, for having um, me. And yeah, oh, before we leave, uh, where people can find you if they're keen to sort of check out your your content or if they do want to book in for a session or anything uh, like that. Yeah, so my Insta is at michelle.physio. Um, my email is hello at michelle.physio. Uh, sweet. And nice you can do online bookings through my website, which is just michelle.physio. <laughs> wow i love it it's so simple yeah <laughs> um and yeah I'll, I'll give you a plug i think michelle uh well michelle talking about you in third person all right. uh, is a really really good follow on on instagram just thank you you put out so much good information nice and you know good good level of detail but like done in a way that's very accessible i think to clinicians or even to clients mm. so, um yeah highly recommend thanks uh, checking out your your stuff <laughs> cool All right. Well, thanks again. And thanks everyone for listening. We'll catch you on the next episode. Thanks. Thanks for listening to the Restore to Explore podcast. To stay up to date with all things TFC, join our brand new free community. Inside, you'll find a growing library of education, training and resources to help you resolve common conditions, restore natural function and explore your body's potential with a community that's there to support you along the way. To join, just head to thefootcollective.com or you'll find the link in our show notes.